This is Archive Atlanta, episode 19, 1906 Race Riot. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Happy Friday, everyone! Somehow, it's already the middle of January. I haven't quite figured out how that happened yet, but I hope that everyone's 2019 is going really well, and I want to thank you all for tuning in each week to hear more Atlanta history with me. Now, if you ask any tour guide, I think they're all going to tell you that we love going on tours. It's the first thing I do when I go to another city. When I went to New Orleans last month, my boyfriend and I had um, like our own little short list of things we wanted to do. Mine were all tours. <laughs> and I have to like temper it down a little bit when I'm going with a non-history person, so I don't really like, push the limits. But I managed to get three tours into a four-day trip, so that was success for me. But even in Atlanta, I go on tours all the time, and I go on them more than once. And don't let any guide tell you any different, but I think we all have our favorite guides, too. Um, I have a male category, female category. And in the male category is the late Cliff Coon. He's been called the People's Historian, author of two books, which um, I own and I reference all the time. And he was a Georgia State professor. Sadly, he passed away in 2015. But I bring him up today because this week I am sharing a story that he shared better than anyone else. The story of the 1906 race riot. Cliff gave the downtown tour tracing the steps of the riot, and it is, to date, my favorite tour of all time. The riot is always how I start off my Sweet Auburn tour. And the first question I ask is, so who's heard of the race riot? Usually I look into blank stares. Once in a while, a weary hand goes up, and if someone does know about it, I instantly know they're a history nerd like me, and then we become BFFs. But in all seriousness, by the end of this episode, I hope you can understand how crazy it is that no one knows about it, and why this history is important to share, but also to learn from. So yes, this week, I'm finally bringing you the story that I promised in every other episode, the 1906 Atlanta Race Riot. The term race riot in America can apply to many groups of people. There has been racial violence against Native Americans, violence between Catholics and Protestants um, against people from Central or Latin America, but today I'm focusing on race riots involving African Americans, specifically in the South. And I want to give you a little bit of background before we get to Atlanta in 1906. The most important fact to point out, and one that tends to surprise people, is that these riots are almost all white, vigilante, mob violence against black people, and sometimes even white abolitionists. And I think that's the reason so many of these histories are buried. History is written by the victors, so the saying goes. And in the United States, our history is written from the white male perspective. The reason that learning about the Atlanta race riot and race riots across America, um, is so important is because, especially the few that I mentioned and the one that I'm going to talk about, it's all the same story. It's the same script, different actors. And at the bottom of the bucket of reasons why these start is fear. Fear of what is different, fear of change, fear of losing jobs, and those issues never seem to go away. As civilized and advanced as our society gets, I don't think we can progress as far as we hope to without addressing fear and what it can make humans do to one another. 
In pre-Civil War South, racial violence against slaves was usually found in conjunction with slave revolts or plans for rebellion, so if they discovered plans. I was shocked to learn of a handful of race riots that happened in quote-unquote free northern states in the period during slavery. In Cincinnati, you had um, angry Irish immigrants who had been competing with free blacks for jobs. They formed a mob of about two to 300 men, invaded the riverfront area where African Americans lived. They burned shelters, homes, assaulted people. Now, less than half of the black population of Cincinnati would stay in the city after that event. But seven years later, same angry Irish men, well, not the same exact ones, but you get the idea, um, would once again invade black neighborhoods, kill an unknown number of people, and this time they extended their violence to white abolitionists who supported an end to slavery. Towards the end of the war years, 1863, you have a white mob in Detroit that's going to attack the city's black population just due to racial tensions. Um, you had the infamous New York City draft riots. That's a huge topic, really interesting. And that stems from poor Irish-born New Yorkers having to compete with jobs again for free blacks now that New York was part of the union and embraced emancipation. The list goes on and on and on. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I could be here all day, but I hope that that gives you an idea about early race riots, and I highly encourage everyone to read more about this. I am going to put up a great link in the show notes. It's from blackpast.org, and it lists every single riot, and then it's all hyperlinked. So once you click on it, it takes you to another great site that's going to give you all the information. Let's bring ourselves down south to Atlanta in the 1880s. At this point, the city has become the hub of the regional economy, and people are pouring in. The city's population would double by the time we reach 1910. And I've mentioned this before in the Reynoldstown episode, but immediately after emancipation, many newly freed slaves continued to live on their former owner's land. They just didn't know where else to go or have anywhere else to go. Many became sharecroppers, which was just a few steps out of the bondage they just escaped. The 1890s is really when lots of things are going to start to change. So this is the decade when you see the highest number of lynchings happening all over Georgia. Cotton prices are dropping, um, which is throwing poor white and black southern farmers into poverty. And then we have something called the boll weevil. A boll weevil is a beetle that eats cotton buds and cotton flowers. It almost doesn't seem possible, but this little bug would crush small economies, small town economies, devalue all of the land, and it would trigger a mass migration into bigger cities for work. So Atlanta's African-American population in 1880 is about 9,000 people. In 1900, it's 35,000 people. So those numbers alone can give you an idea of how the city is growing. Now imagine you have this bustling city just 30 years or so out of the Civil War, and this growth is putting pressure on municipal services, there's job competition between white and black workers, there's heightened class distinctions, and Atlanta's white leadership responds with trying to restrict and kind of control the daily behavior of the working class. There is a lot of tension, a lot of uneasiness in regards to the races mixing in everyday life, you know, the whole thing is like there's so many people in Atlanta, you lose the ability to be really strict on white people go here, black people go here. 
Whites are uncertain about traditional racial boundaries. And I've mentioned this previously, but women are going back to work. So for a white Southern man, you're looking around and black people are roaming freely. Women are working next to you in the factory. It's really a a whole new world that a lot of people could not accept. Now, white elites are sort of watching from above, and in their fear of the commingling of the races, you see the expansion of Jim Crow laws, neighborhood segregation, and then um, separate seating on public transit. They're kind of trying everything they can to keep everything separate. Another thing that was fueling racial tensions that wasn't happening in many other cities was the rise of an educated black elite. The west side of Atlanta at this time has Atlanta University, Morehouse, Spelman, and the Old Fourth Ward has Morris Brown. This was the center of the universe for African-American Southern education. Atlanta was it. And then whenever you have young, educated people, you're going to get modern and revolutionary ideas. For the Black community in Atlanta, these were ideas about civil rights, equal rights, voting, things that white Southerners were like, I thought we got rid of this after Reconstruction. So kind of these old ideas are coming back. Now, I'm getting to the point where I have enough episodes that I can't remember where I said what, but I have spoken before about the creation of the Southern Belle kind of myth, the idea that the good old, old South was a world where women could be women, they could stay home, take care of the family, not have to work, and tied into this ideal was the idea that a true Southern gentleman would protect the honor of his woman at all costs. I love reading a few choice words um, from women, forward-thinking women at the time. I think it was Mary Latimer Felton. She's like, hey, that's great. We'll accept your help, guys. But, you know, really with the idea that we're very much capable. So there was a little bit of kind of like early feminism coming in there. This all leads me into the months leading up to September of 1906. Atlanta whites disapprove of the saloons in downtown, which are frequented by black residents, especially in Decatur Street. There were reports of framed photos of naked white women on the walls, and the prevailing idea at the time was that once you gave a black man a drop of alcohol combined with these images of white nudity, you were essentially creating a rapist. Also, less than a year before the riot, there was a play uh, performed in Atlanta called The Klansman, Now, The Klansman was based on a novel of the same name, and the idea of this play was supposed to be a message to Northerners that free blacks would turn savage and violent, commit rape and murder. This is the book and play that would eventually become the movie called The Birth of a Nation. If you don't know, just Google that. It's a famously, ridiculously racist silent film from 1915. So these ideas had kind of been implanted a year before, and then everything is sort of coming to fruition in Atlanta. Also in 1906, um, in Atlanta, you have a governor's race taking place. Two candidates, um, Hoke Smith and Clark Howell. And they're both playing to white fears of a black upper middle class, and they're both running on platforms that included black disenfranchisement. Hoke Smith is the former owner of the Atlanta Journal. And here is a good time to point out that our newspaper today is called the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but at this time, the Journal and the Constitution were two very, very separate newspapers. Smith ran on a platform that was pretty progressive. He wanted to ban child labor, kind of uh, something about direct primaries, nominating candidates by the popular vote. So very progressive stuff. But then he went and aligned himself with Tom Watson, 
And Tom Watson, at this stage in his life, had become like the angry populist racist. So Hoke Smith had to get on that train of, hey, if you elect me, I'm going to disenfranchise um, black voters. Clark Howell was editor of the Atlanta Constitution, and he used that paper very much to fuel the fire of racial tension that was running through the Atlanta air. In late September, newspaper reports four separate incidences of alleged attacks by blacks on white women. This is the era of yellow journalism, which we now call fake news, which also makes me depressed that we still are dealing with this stuff. But there was no real fact-checking. So when someone printed something, when a newspaper printed something, it was taken as fact. So this was also the same era of special editions. You would have a morning paper, but you'd have an afternoon paper, maybe even an evening paper. And these papers were meant to sell. So they're sensationalizing the details. They're using inflammatory language. And the point of these headlines is not to inform. It's to inspire fear and revenge. And the headline that ran the day before the riot reads, quote, it is time to act, men. Will you do your duty now? End quote. On the evening of September 22, 1906, by about 8.30 p.m. that night, thousands of white men packed into the Five Points area of downtown. They're mainly at the intersection of Decatur Street and Pryor Street. Now, currently, that's the middle of Georgia State, um, but you can go down there right now and essentially stand in the same spot that this mob began to form. The paper boys were still screaming the headlines through the crowd, and for about the first hour and a half, small groups of white men would chase blacks in and out of the area. So black residents didn't really know what was going on, and so they are getting off of work or getting to work or trying to get on public transit to get home, and they're kind of walking unknown into this melee. The next four hours were complete chaos. White men armed with any weapon imaginable, shotguns, bars, knives, sticks, rocks, they just surged through downtown. And the goal was find anyone that's black and hurt them. The mob encounters a streetcar, they surround it, they pick it up in the air, it disconnects itself from the guide wires. Now they allow um, all the white passengers to get off and then they broke in pretty much to fight several African-American passengers on board. There was two women, I think, they tried to fight off the attackers with their umbrellas, but there was um, three black men towards the back that the group set their sight on. Now those three men didn't make it out alive. There are oral histories from witnesses about seeing a barbershop um, helper from Alonzo Herndon's barbershop Now, in writings, he's described as being lame, so I think there was a physical handicap of some kind that kept him from running fast. Once the mob caught up with him, they beat him to death. Former Mayor James English, then president of the 4th National Bank downtown, he would ring the fire alarm bell 10 times to try to call every local policeman to the scene. The current governor, his name was Joseph Terrell, he finally calls the local Georgia militia late that night, and they wouldn't arrive on the scene until 2 a.m. Police presence wasn't exactly doing too much. (laughs) They would arrest only 40 whites, which was less than 1% of the attackers. And they spent a lot of their time worrying about a black counterattack, and then many law enforcement officers were really concerned with disarming any blacks that happened to have a gun or have found any other weapon. 
As dawn broke on Sunday morning, the militia was patrolling the streets. This would last for four days. Um, white mobs would make their way into African-American neighborhoods called Darktown. Um, Darktown is kind of from Peachtree now to Jesse Hill Jr. Drive, pretty much what Sweet Auburn is today. And Brownsville, which was on the south side, kind of starts underneath Chosewood Park near Lakewood Heights. Brownsville is the site where um, right now it's called the New Scrolls at Carver, but it was called the Gammon Theological Seminary. I mentioned that briefly in episode two, if it sounds familiar, but just to kind of give you a geographical idea. There are incredible stories of black families um, waiting in their homes up all night, kind of waiting for the mob. John Wesley Dobbs was a railway mail clerk. They issued him a gun through his job, so it was very rare for a black man to have a gun, but he had a government-issued pistol. Uh, He spent the night sitting on his front steps holding his gun. In Walter White's biography, who would, by the way, become secretary of the NAACP, he describes he and his father protecting his family home. Meanwhile, he's 13, keep in mind. Um, Staying up all night, fully dressed, kind of waiting there. The mob actually reached his neighborhood, but um, shots fired from another source kind of broke up the crowd. Walter never had to find out what it was like to kill someone. On the third day of the riot, a group of African Americans met in Brownsville. Um, They had fully armed themselves, so they were kind of meeting to say, we need to protect ourselves. Now, police learned the news, they feared a counterattack, and they actually launched a raid on this group. A shootout ensues, and an officer was killed. So three militia companies are sent out, and they arrest 250 black Atlantans. I could go on and on about the details of each day, but this wasn't my goal today. There are many, many books written on the riot. I have a particular favorite that I will link in the show notes. But again, I highly encourage more reading if anyone is interested. The aftermath of the riot was felt far and wide. This made international news. There's a famous copy of the front page of a French newspaper with a drawing of the riot. But Atlanta business leaders were embarrassed. In a sense, they didn't want this story to be told. Especially in the 1920s, Atlanta begins a heavily marketed campaign as this city is the place to do business, and the riot seems to disappear into the past. The reason that I start my Sweet Auburn tour with the story of the riot is because it basically created Sweet Auburn. Any black person that lived in an area with white people nearby, or any black-owned businesses that were on Peachtree Street mixed along with other white businesses, they were like, yeah, no thanks. I don't want to do that again. Um, They never wanted to live through this, and it was very much an opportunity to create their own safe place, free from potential mass violence like this, but also free from Jim Crow segregation. For me, that's the beauty of Auburn Avenue. It's this fully self-sufficient block where an African-American can bank, worship, own a business, whatever they wanted. Residentially, many Blacks moved to the West Side. So at this point, the West Side started becoming a designated area for African-Americans to live. I touched on this a little bit in episode 15, but the riot also influenced the passage of prohibition in the city, and city leaders after the riot passed very strict segregation laws and laws to limit black voting power. Within the African American community, this is when you start to see an even bigger divide between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Dubois. Many began to criticize the accommodationist strategy 
of Washington, and it gave rise to more, you know, quote-unquote aggressive tactics of W.E.B. Du Bois and the younger generation that were fighting for racial justice. Du Bois wrote his famous poem, it's called The Litany of Atlanta, in response to the riot, but also he went on to create the NAACP, I think, three years after the riot. As I mentioned earlier, Walter White, and no, this is not the guy from Breaking Bad, um, he would be so affected by the riot, when he grew up, he went on to become secretary of the NAACP. So there you have it, the story of the 1906 race riot. I remind you that this is a broad overview, so continue to dig deeper. And next time you're walking downtown, near Woodruff Park, that big Coca-Cola sign, down Auburn Avenue, or down Decatur Street, Close your eyes for just a moment and imagine thousands of armed, angry men barreling past you. I don't think anyone can truly imagine what that kind of fear feels like until you're witnessing it firsthand. Earlier, I mentioned that Georgia and Atlanta had done a really great job of keeping the story buried for many years. And by many years, I mean a hundred. The Atlanta school curriculum did not begin teaching the 1906 race riot until 2006, one century later. Now, what Atlanta teaches in schools is a whole other podcast episode, but I want you to understand how important this stuff is to learn and to share. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast, sharing it with their people, and the extra awesome people that have left me reviews or ratings. You can contact me via email, Facebook, or Instagram. All of that is in the show notes. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you guys next week.